Welcome to the ISA Science of Arboriculture podcast series. This series was developed by the International Society of Arboriculture and is brought to you by the Bartlett Tree Experts, caring for America's trees since 1907. This podcast series offers full-length educational talks by the world's top researchers, educators, and practitioners helping to keep you up to date with developments in the arboriculture industry. This is Tom Smiley at the Bartlett Tree Research Laboratory with today's talk by Linda Chalker-Scott on what science says about pruning mature trees. It was originally presented at the ISA International Conference in Fort Worth, Texas in 2016. Good afternoon. We're ready to get started here. It's a few minutes early, but I want to go through the introductions because Linda has a lot of material to cover in a short amount of time. My name is Jim Flott. I am a board member of the ISA, and I'm here to moderate this session this afternoon. Linda and I have known each other for a long time, as long as we're both from the state of Washington. Unfortunately, though, we often have to travel 2,000 miles to see each other. <laughs> Linda has a PhD in horticulture from Oregon State. She's an ISA certified arborist and ASCA consulting arborist. She's WSU's extension urban horticulturalist and an associate professor in the Department of Horticulture. She's the author of four books, most recently publishing How Plants Work, The Science Behind the Amazing Things Plants Do. And she and three of her other colleagues host the Garden Professors. How many of you have been on that website or use that website? Great. So Linda's behind that blog, along with her three other colleagues and Facebook pages associated with that blog. And through that, they educate the public, us, and entertain people at an international level as well. So I'm going to turn it over to Linda. Please welcome Linda Chalker-Scott. Thanks, Jim. Uh, my email is on here. I'm giving you this because if you want the most recent version of this talk, I can send it to you as a, as a PDF. Um, it's big because it's got the pictures too, so it's seven megabytes. If your email can't handle that, um, we'll figure something else out. There is one that's uploaded, of course, with ISA, but that was three weeks ago, and like everybody else, I tinker until the last minute. So what's on the website for ISA is not the same exactly as what I have today. So um, <laughs> this is an interesting topic. There's um, a lot of uh, interesting discussion behind it. And so what I do, like I do with a lot of different topics, is I get into the weeds. I get into the, the scientific literature and try to figure out the science behind some particular topic or product. So this is a talk that is going to be kind of um, real fast. It's going to seem very disjointed because I'm knitting together four different areas of research to come to some conclusions and recommendations. So first of all, in terms of research in older trees, where does it come from? Well, mostly it's production forestry because that's where the money was. So there was a lot of work in production forestry looking at timber stand management, you know, how to keep a healthy stand. So it's kind of uh, the same analogy as crop production research and trying to take that 
and make uh, decisions about managing horticultural things in a landscape or garden. It's, it doesn't really match very well, but there is some good information out there that we can address um, the question about pruning mature trees as individuals as opposed to stand management. They were particularly interested in looking at how to take off lower branches. When you look at timber quality, you don't want knots. So you're always trying to uh, prune off the lower branches so that they would, the knots would not be really large. Um, to prune off those lower branches as quickly as possible. And in the same way, they were very interested in the process of self-pruning, which we'll talk about a little bit later. It's one of those real tongue twisters that I know I'll say we're on at one point, but it's cutoptosis. And if you haven't heard of that, we'll talk about that a bit. The other part um, in terms of uh, the history of the research has been in fruit, nut, and wood production. So specifically um, looking at things that and I, by wood, I don't mean timber, but I mean um, long, long, uh, very thin branches that would be used for a variety of things, especially centuries ago. So coppices and pollards were really common in terms of keeping crowns low so things could be harvested easily. And these things could last for a long, 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 long time. Um, most recently, um, this can be done or seen in uh, tall spindle production of apples and some other types of fruit. This is taking off the outer limbs so that you don't have the scaffold limbs anymore. And instead, um, as, as, as the name suggests, is a tall spindle. It's very narrow and very few um, outer branches. And those, those outer branches, rather than being the scaffolds, are these stubs. So there's still this type of, of um, uh, maintenance of very specific trees, usually for a production purpose, as opposed to just something that was ornamental. So what I did was I went through the, um, the scientific literature. This is the peer-reviewed scientific articles, and that's what I always limit my, my searches to. Um, the databases I use are Agricola, Biosis, uh, CAB International, and I also went into the um, AUF archives, just because sometimes they don't get pulled out in these other search engines. Um, I found about 50 articles that were somehow relevant to what the question is. Um, and I really limited it to the last 20 years. And it's not because there's not valuable information before that, but just like climbing practices and pruning practices have, have changed in the last century or so, we really want to focus on the newest stuff, especially in terms of physiology, ecophysiology, molecular biology. Those things didn't really exist as fields back 100 years ago. So the four areas I'm looking at that we'll talk about and knit together, uh, general tree physiology, physiology of aging trees, effects of pruning on trees, and then pruning aging trees. And so there's this, there's this little nest of, of information on each one of those things, and the trick is to, to knit it together. First of all, we need to define things. And I know this seems um, semantics, but it's really not. There's two ways you can identify organisms that get old. It can either be aging, which is environmental, or um, you know, a decrease in performance as you get older. <laughs> Um, and more poetically, a mere passing of chronological time. So this is environmentally mediated. The other way is senescence, and that's genetically controlled. This is like leaves coming off in autumn. That's a programmed tissue death. The leaves die to fall off, that's senescence. In a senescing organism, especially as it gets older and is exposed to more and more environmental insults, they tend to accumulate mutations. Um, in humans, that's, that usually comes out as different types of cancers. Um, you can see this in molecular changes in the organism also as it senesces. So the question is, which of these two models is more appropriate for ancient trees? Do they age or do they senesce? 
Well, the best thing to look at in terms of a model organism is bristlecone pine, because this is the, the, the tree that is the oldest known living tree on the planet. Um, has very high exposure to ultraviolet radiation, which induces lots and lots of mutations at the chromosomal level, um, but they haven't found any in bristlecone pine. So we can't say that mutational changes to um, the DNA is what's causing them to, to, to age or to senesce. The decline in their growth is also reversible, and we'll discover that as we look at why growth slows and in the situations where it is reversible. Um, thinning is one example. If you take out the competitors, there's more water and resources for the remaining plants, and growth can pick right back up, even in something that appears to be um, declining. Secondly, increasing resources. One of the things people are looking at right now is carbon dioxide levels. With uh, climate change, more and more CO2, more photosynthesis, and they're actually seeing turnarounds of some very old trees in terms of becoming more productive. So in terms of trees, and this isn't just bristle cones, but trees in general, they don't senesce. They age. So time passes, but they don't die because they accumulate all these different types of mutations or these other molecular changes going on. It's an environmentally induced death. Okay, second bit of information is on um, relevant tree morphology and physiology. And you're going to know a lot of this stuff, but it's important to bring it out and knit it together. So first of all, we need to think about bud release. Two types of bud release, either apical buds, which is where uh, growth comes from immediately, and you all know that. And this is sometimes called reiteration, where you're just you're, you're having the same type of tissue come out, so you get these really interesting architectural forms. And the second part, the second type is delayed um, growth. And this would be from epicormic shoots. So you've seen these before on things that have been poorly pruned, and all of a sudden you get all this regrowth, and those are epicormic buds. Adapter reiteration is slightly different. And this is a forestry term, and again, it goes back to stand management and looking at how how plants uh, reproduce the same structure over and over. Re adaptive reiteration is still epicormic buds, but it's not induced by trauma. So it's not from pruning or something else. They just start growing these epicormic shoots. And what they sometimes call this is a bud bank. So I know this picture is kind of hard to see. It came out of a, a paper that I had read. But it's showing how on this conifer, as the leaves get older, the branch ages, they kind of droop. And then all these epicormic shoots on the very top of the branch come out with these little miniature leaves, which look pretty much like these other ones, but they're smaller, they're slower growing, and they just kind of extend the longevity of the branch because they're right up there collecting sun. They may also prolong tree longevity. They're not really sure. It's hard to test these things when you have to look at decades or centuries to tell, but that's what they're surmising. So what this is probably, this, um, this adaptive reiteration is probably an adaptation so old trees can continue to grow and, and utilize the resources as they become available. As I said, as the branches tend to droop, then all of a sudden you've got these spots that open up where sunlight could be collected. So you have these little units that pop up from epicormic buds. Okay, then we have to look at sapwood dynamics. Um, and this gets really complicated. It's amazing anybody can ever figure anything out anymore because everything is so complicated. But what you have to think about is the outer sapwood is connecting the surface roots to the sun leaves. Okay, and that's not, you know, hard and fast, everything's that way, but in general, you know, we've got the, the, the surface roots are going out the furthest, they are collecting things going up through the outer sapwood, and they're going out to the sun leaves, and vice versa, so you have this connection among those, those three units. If you have a decrease in water, you're going to have a decrease in sun foliage. So what, for whatever reason, not enough water, poor roots, whatever, when you have a decrease in water, you're going to have fewer leaves, they're going to be smaller, 
um, they may die if, if it's, a, if it's a, a drastic change. Likewise, if you have a decrease in photosynthesis from those sun leaves, then you're gonna have less stuff going to the roots for them to grow and continue to the cycle. So you see what happens here, and this is really important when you start thinking about pruning, because when you change one of these things, it changes everything else. And then the innermost part, and the innermost part of the flow is going up to feed the older branches and the subcanopy branches. Um, that becomes, there's less water going through there because you get um, different types of uh, blockages that form in the xylem. So it becomes less and less water being able to travel up to those branches and they tend to grow less quickly and sometimes they will die. Okay, so now we're looking at the physiology of aging trees. And ancient trees, um, as I mentioned, they're, they're, they can be extraordinarily long-lived, you know, four, three, four, five thousand years old. And there's even shrubs and, and even smaller plants because of their clonal nature can live for hundreds if not thousands of years. They're in very harsh environments oftentimes. The oldest ones, the oldest ones are all conifers and almost all of them are found in, in, in harsh environments. So one of the things people surmise is, well, there's not very many pests or disease there, so they don't have that constant battle with living factors, and that could have something to do with it, especially as they get older and they're more susceptible. There's not a whole lot known about their physiology. It's a fairly limited group of faculty that actually study this because there's not a whole lot of money in it. It's not a timber thing. It's an ecological uh, field of study. And again, they don't appear to senesce. They age, but they do not collect mutations and have other types of genetically programmed death going on in them. So why does growth decline in these aging trees? Well, there are a whole bunch of reasons, many of them theoretical, some of them um, demonstrated. We already know it's not senescence, so it's not some trigger that turns on like it does with leaves that fall. Um, parts may die, but the organism doesn't. And so a lot of these ancient trees, you'll have huge amount of dead wood but you'll still have these branches with living needles on them. So the organism still lives as parts of it die. It turns out it's size and not age that really drives the change to decreased growth. So things can be quite old and grow quite, more rapidly. Things can be quite young and not grow rapidly at all because of things going on in the environment. This is an interesting experiment. Um, there was some grafting done. They took, they took young tissue and grafted it on to, to ancient tree branches and you took ancient tissue and grafted it onto younger branches. And in both cases, the rootstock forced changes in the foliage. Okay, so young tissue, vigorously growing, if you put it onto an ancient tree, it slowed down. Old, old tissue grafted onto a young tree, it would speed up. This is really interesting because it shows that it's not a genetic trigger. It's really environmental. It's what the roots are feeding it in terms of, of water and minerals and you know, the whole cycle with everything being connected together. So it's not a genetic trigger. So when you hear rejuvenation pruning used in the, in the context of ancient trees, it's not accurate. Because it's not genetic, we're not going back to a juvenile form. They're, they're just aging and resources change and they can speed up their growth. Resources change again, they slow down, but it's not a rejuvenation because that suggests that it's dying or senescing, and we're gonna take it back to a younger form, and that's just not what happens with these trees. Okay, so, um, as I said, there's a whole bunch of, of uh, theories about why growth declines, and, and in terms of water, and, and I think most people agree that water is probably the, the most important environmental characteristic, there's something called the hydraulic limitation hypothesis. How many people have heard of that? Okay, so some of you have. 
So this has several things going on with it. One is gravity. The farther up you have to take water, the more, I mean, if you were pumping, it would just be an incredible amount of force required to pump, and we already know that pumping doesn't happen in trees, but you're still having to defy gravity, um, and the taller the tree gets, the harder it is. Um, secondly, it's a longer pathway, and when you're looking at, at very small tubes where you can have uh, embolisms occur, it becomes more and more difficult. It can become more tortuous, you have roots that are going all over the place. You'll have things that are dying off in the trunk, and so you have some rerouting and detouring around those, those, those problems, and so it becomes a more tortuous pathway for water to move. And finally, um, as trees age, they tend to allocate fewer resources to their roots. If you have fewer resources in the roots, they don't grow as much, they don't grow as much, they don't take up as much water, and so on. So these four things kind of make up this hydraulic limitation hypothesis. Well, so it could be water-related. It could be decreases in soil water. When we look at changing uh, climate, we look at warmer temperatures, it very well could be not just the, this uh, hydraulic limitation, but the actual absence of enough soil water. Could be a decrease in soil nutrients that slows it down. Um, it's reversible, um, and, and when they've looked at, at these things in experimental settings, it's, it's very easy. To, to demonstrate increased growth when, when it's a limiting resource like water and nutrients. Um, it's happened when you have uh, flooding. It happens when there's been rerouting of channels. It happens when, um, when tree roots finally get deep enough to get into another source of water, and you'll see a, a burst of new growth. And then, as I mentioned again, with an increase in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, you have a lot of trees that are, that are putting on new bursts of growth because that was limiting to them in their particular environment. So what happens when they finally reach maximal height, which is, again, not necessarily genetically determined? Well, the girth continues to expand. So we kind of tend to think about ancient trees just kind of stopping growth. And they may not get any taller, but they get wider. They have to get wider. And the reason is, is they, they, well, they need increased mechanical support. But from a functional viewpoint, they've got to have new vascular tissue, right? They've got to have new xylem laid down, new phloem laid down. And that's what contributes to girth. So they never stop growing a girth. The rings may get smaller and smaller, but they continue to put those down. The tops of these trees are often flattened. They tend to, to suffer chronic drought and a lot of the new growth, especially the top times, to die back. And so sometimes the crown will be flattened, even in conifers. And you get uh, cladoptosis occurring more. And again, this is, this is a self-pruning uh, behavior that trees do. And again, these changes are reversible. So it shows, again, it's not a genetic um, component. It is totally environmental. Um, there's some foliar changes that happen too, and, and some of these seem like, I know probably seem like they're irrelevant, but you'll see when we get you know, to the big picture that it's important to understand why the foliage of older trees is so much different than younger trees and what kind of effect that has. The foliage is much longer lived, it's much slower growing, it tends to be shorter and thicker, and I know again this is probably hard to see. Um, this is actually a bonsai tree. And the old growth, the needles are very, very um, short internodes, and the leaves are very, very close together. And here in the bottom, it's, it's much longer internodes, um, and so you can actually see the space between the needles. So that's a real obvious morphological difference between older and newer foliage. Older foliage doesn't photosynthesize as much. It's just slower. Everything's slower. It has increased defenses, however. Um, it has oftentimes something called astrosclerids. You can see in this. Um, photomicrograph here that looks like a little starfish. It's actually a star-shaped crystal. It's um, sclerophyllous. It's lignin. It's, it's uh, like stone cells in pairs. You know, it's hard and crunchy. 
and it's, it's, it's um, probably structurally supportive as well as possibly defensive. They also make a lot of phytochemicals that um, are repellent to insects, and they make a lot more antioxidants. So they tend to be very chemically rich. They're just not doing a lot of photosynthesis. And then, again, if you, if you stress these trees by pruning or whatever, um, they will revert back to a primary foliage um, behavior until you can get to a, a limiting factor. So now looking at pruning. So this is step three here. If you take away the live crown, how is that going to affect growth? So this is generally speaking. Okay, pruning is going to dwarf a tree. Compared to one that's not pruned under the very same situations, it's going to dwarf the tree. It's just what happens. Carbohydrate levels go down, and so you have fewer resources, you're going to have less growth. Thinning cuts, by and large, have a little effect on bud growth in terms of epicormic bud growth. On the other hand, heading cuts are going to stimulate epicormic bud growth. And this, again, is not the adaptive reiteration. This is the stress or trauma-induced epicormic growth. When you prune, the biggest effects are going to be at the roots and the lower stem. The reason is you have a change in carbon allocation when you prune. You're taking away photosynthesis, uh, photosynthetic mechanisms, and then you're going to have new buds coming in as well. So all of a sudden, you have all these new axes that are breaking, whether they're apical or whether they're epicormic, and at this point, they're not adding anything to the, the carbohydrate pool because they're not photosynthesizing. There's, there's no leaf tissue there, but they're, they're growing quickly, they're using water, and they're using sugars. So all of a sudden, resources that used to go to the roots are now being directed towards these other axes, these new points of growth. So you also will see a reduce in taper and girth because the, the, the trunks are no longer getting as much food. You're going to have a deficit on the roots, and this is seen in less root growth, is seen less support of nitrogen-fixing bacteria, and less mycorrhizal fungal, fungi, fungi support. So you're going to have these repercussions occurring any time pruning occurs, whether it's natural or whether it's, it's human-induced. And obviously, it's going to happen. It's just this is what's going to happen as, as a result, and we have to keep that in mind. How severe the wounding is and how vigorous the tree is will obviously affect its response and its survival. So they found, um, looking at um, some research on uh, trees in general, you know, um, that the severity of the crown removal is proportional to how long it takes the tree to recover. The green growth is reduced, canopy is reduced for years after. And it, will, it can catch up, but the more um, severe it is, the longer it takes. If you have um, crown reduction of more than 40%, it almost assuredly will cause epicormic growth as a, re as a result. And finally, things like emerald ash borer really like things where the crown's been removed. Um, they pre preferentially lay eggs on trees with 40 to 60% of their crown removed. So whether it's a chemical that they're sensing or something else, not quite sure, but EAB should be something that scares the pants off of everybody when you start thinking about pruning. Very severely pruned trees are most likely to die indirectly. Okay, um, it just takes longer to recover, especially older trees. The older they are, the less likely they are to recover from being pruned severely. Um, the stress trees are going to attract opportunistic things, along with um, emerald ash borer. They will attract pine beetles, um, and they will probably be more open to, to um, opportunistic diseases as well. New growth, especially lower down, will attract browsers. One of the papers I was looking at when they were trying to look at the physiological responses, they lost most of their trees because they were either taken over by pine beetles or browsed to death by moose, because all of a sudden there's all this new fresh growth and the trees were gone. 
Um, large branch pruning, of course, has drawbacks, as we all know. It takes longer for those cuts to seal over, and you get an increased chance that pathogens are going to get in there during that time. So those aren't anything new. Everybody knows that already. Um, something you may not be as familiar with is how uh, cladoptosis works. This is self-pruning, and it's one of those great coffee table or cocktail lounge words. Clad just means stem, and ptosis means falling, so literally falling stems. So what'll happen is a tree will create an abscission zone, just like it does with leaves. You know, so this is actually programmed cell death. In this case, it's with branches. And you can see that this zone will form on, on this older limb here. And on younger ones, they just fall right off. And everyone's seen this before. You know, you can, you can go and you can brush the trunk of a tree and those little tiny uh, dead branches, they, they come right off because they have a complete abscission zone. Things like this um, require more effort to break. They usually require some kind of mechanical force. They don't come off as cleanly as the small ones do. So if you're observing these things, what they've, what they've found is when they're looking long-term studies, that once a branch stops growing, it takes about seven years for it actually to fall off by self-pruning. So if you're trying to predict what branches are going to fail, you know, it can take you several years to figure this out. And as I said, the, branch, the breaking is different with the young, young branches. They just they pop right off. Um, you can even you know, pick the branch up and stick it back with a scar. It's that, it's that clean. With the older branches, there's usually mechanical force that, that has to be applied for it to come off completely. So the branch is actually dead here, but it's just not senesced yet. And some trees do this and some don't, apparently. Um, my personal opinion is probably they all do, but in terms of when they looked at this at least short term, the, the behavior seems to be uh, somewhat species-specific. Um, it's triggered by environmental factors. It's, it's, um, it's, 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 a it's a molecular process, genetically controlled, but the trigger is environmental. So it could be decreased water. That's very common. And it may have something to do with uh, summer uh, branch drop, um, although that's a much faster thing than, than uh, uh, cladoptosis. Could be a decrease in light, very common in stands. We're looking at stand management. We have a lot of trees close together. Lower branches die off very quickly because of the, the lack of light. Um, that happens partially because of a decrease in photosynthesis, means you're having a decrease in sapwood flux, and you have a decrease in transpiration because you're not using enough water there because you're not photosynthesizing. And so that decreases inner xylem flow, and you start to get blockages because they're not used as much. And so you can kind of see how it all connects together. And a, a third possibility, and this is with very specialized systems, that it might be a fire survival or avoidance technique. So things like um, pine forests, that are, you know, the dry pine forests that are they're susceptible to, to forest fires, you know, um, they don't have a whole lot of lower branches. They, they, they cleave those off pretty quickly, um, possibly as a mechanism for keeping fire out of the canopy. Because the bark tends to be very fire resistant, and for the branches, dead branches are gone, then it's not as likely the fire will get up into the living canopy. Okay, crown removal. So now we're looking at artificial ways of, of um, uh, pruning. Uh, concerns, obviously, if you do something drastic in terms of crown reduction, you're going to get increased uh, exposure to shade leaves um, to full sun, which they're not adapted to, and so they usually get fried out pretty quickly. You're having, you have dead wood, especially if there's any kinds of stubs there, and that's going to be a source of, of pathogens. Your structural integrity is decreased, and it's ugly. You know, <laughs> it's, just, it's not very attractive at all. Um, Pollard and coppicing are two ways of, of managing size that's, that's more intensive. Um, the branches are young when they're pollarded. 
Uh, they require frequent pruning. The wounds callus over, usually pretty effectively. Disease is compartmentalized. If it's properly done, these trees can last for a long, 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 long time, much longer than their, their um, uh, other, other members of the same species, which aren't kept at this, this reduced crown. Um, it's not a rejuvenation, again. This is not changing the genetics or programming or anything. This is just changing the environmental conditions. It's, you know, getting back to the hydraulic um, limitation. If you don't have as tall a crown, you don't have as much problem getting water up there. So one thing that's really interesting about these trees that have been very, you know, coppiced or pollarded for, for centuries is that they have this really intense biodiversity of, of plants and animals within them because they've been there forever and they've been colonized by all these really cool things. So they have created their own little neat microcosms of sometimes very rare and very ancient um, organisms. This, I think, is partially why retrenchment has become, it's one of the reasons why retrenchment has become um, popular. Um, it's, it's done, you know, with, with a look to reducing risk of splitting and to promoting uh, newer branch, uh, lower branches. But it's also based on looking at these old pollards and these old coppices and just seeing how, how biodiverse they are and how long these trees can live. So there seems to be, you know, a connection between doing this retrenchment and looking at what happens with very, very ancient um, pollards and coppices which have been kept artificially small for centuries. So how does all this come together to help figure out what you do with, with pruning ancient trees? Number one, pruning is stressful. You're reducing carbohydrates, you're reducing nitrogen levels because nitrogen, the sink is in the, in the leaves and if you take them off, then your nitrogen is gone. Structural integrity is compromised anytime you prune. And you're going to increase the chances for opportunistic pests and diseases. That's just a given. So we all know this, but we all have to prune sometimes, but we have to keep this in mind that it's a stressful event on the tree. Secondly, ancient trees cannot be rejuvenated. It is not a genetic case of senescence. It is just aging, just time passing by, things slowing down, performance possibly slowing. It's an environmental-induced state. There's a balance between resource availability and tree physiology always. And when you change that, it's going to change the balance. So you prune, it's going to change what happens to the roots. Um, you know, you do things around the roots, it changes what happen, happens in the tree. So it's, it, as you already know, it's very complicated. And you cannot take ancient trees and retroactively coppice or pollard them. You can't do it. To do this type of management, you have to start when it's young, and otherwise you're just causing all kinds of damage. It's not something you can just create these, these ancient, um, you can't create a, a, a pollard from an ancient tree that's, that's, that's 200 feet tall. Looking at ecophysiology, okay, I mentioned again how complex interactions are between the roots, the sapwood, and the leaves. So you've got these environmental variables, all kinds of them, water, light, competition, they're all gonna interact with, with, with plant growth, with maximum height, with performance, all those types of things. And it's really hard to predict which branches are gonna fail. So if you don't know which ones are gonna fail by, by, by really good observations and figuring out what's happened at the root level, what's happening with sun, what's happening with water availability, then you can't really very well go out and just start hacking away at a tree thinking you're going to mimic what's happening in nature. Because unless you know which branches are most likely to fail in nature, you can't mimic it. Consider the old versus the new foliage, okay? 
Um, that should say slower, not lower, but old foliage is slower growing. It's longer lived. It's more efficient with resources. Its water use efficiency is much lower than young foliage. If you take off old foliage to stimulate all this new growth, all of a sudden you've got a huge water demand on that plant. Where's the water going to come from? The reason that it's old foliage in the first place is because there's not enough water to support new foliage. Because remember, if you, you can reverse this whole thing by adding more water. And you add more water and you get you know, new, new foliage, that's great. But if you have old foliage and you take it off and you get this new young foliage, there's no water to support it. Keep in mind, uh, I knew I was going to say it wrong eventually, cladoptosis. Um, Self-pruning is environmentally directed. It's, it's the closest thing to know, you know, for nature to figure out which things need to come off because of lack of resources. So if you're going to predict branch failure, you've really just got to watch a tree for years to figure out how, how changes to the, the root system or anything else is going to possibly affect which branches are going to go first. And in terms of ancient coppices and pollards, they are not good models for ancient tree management. They are not the same thing. They were managed in a certain artificial way for a long time. When you start with a young tree, you can do that, but you can't do it retroactively with an old tree. So here's the recommendations. You want to avoid unnecessary canopy opening. Okay? Anytime you're going to do that, you're going to scald, scald the bark that's in there, and you're going to increase damage to the inner canopy leaves because they're not adapted to high light levels. Of course, they can get over it. The younger the tree is, the more likely it is. But with older trees, which is the whole point of this talk, there's no point in opening up the canopy unless you really need to. Don't leave stubs. They're hazardous to the health of the tree. They're hazardous to workers. Think about that. I don't think they ever talk about what happens to a worker who's up there and all of a sudden impales himself on a stub. Um, stubs will also increase epicormic bud release. Not necessarily a good thing. Uh, you have increased shading if you have all these, these branches coming up and you have increased canopy congestion. That's if there's enough water to support all that leaf growth. So you see how it's all connected in together. Don't leave rough cut ends. Um, it's a great way to get disease in there or, or opportunistic pests. They love that stuff. It's really hard for these things to seal over because they're rough cut. If you can, use, use nature's methods of pruning. If you can uh, allow the tree to self-prune, you know, by, by, by you know, careful observation and figuring out what's going to go, and then if it's not something that's going to be a hazard, letting it go by itself. But it's much more reliable this way of removing what is ultimately the least productive branches, because that's what the tree does naturally. And then, of course, if you have a hazardous situation, you want to, you know, take out branches as you need to, um, but that's a whole other question. And I think I have five minutes for questions. Is that right? Okay. Yes. Well, part of doing uh, re retrenchment pruning is doing what's called coronet cuts. So rather than doing, you know, your your typical, you know, planar cut, it would be making it really rough and angular. With the reasoning being because it provides all this surface habitat for microorganisms to colonize, and microorganisms include pathogens. So that's that's why I said that. Anything else? Yes. Okay, I'll repeat this. So the question was, in terms of the epicormic shoots, how I said that they don't contribute to um, the photosynthetic stream. 
And I should have clarified and said initially, because during that first growth, they don't have any leaves. So they're just using the resources and they're a sink initially, but then absolutely they will become a source of photosynthate. So thank you for having me clarify that. Right, right. Yeah, it's just the initial, the initial use, yes. You bet. Back there, yes. I really can't say anything about retrenchment pruning because I couldn't find any good science-based articles about it. So I can't tell you a thing about it other than what I've just read in, in more kind of white paperish type things. There just isn't the science-based experimental peer-reviewed literature on it. So I, can, I can't address it at all. That was what was kind of frustrating for me when I was doing my search. That's a really good question. And that sounds like a really good thing that people need to sit down and figure out and come up with some um, really good science-based uh, best management practices for. I mean, I, I absolutely agree. I think there's a way of incorporating physiology of, of, of ancient trees with that, and I think it absolutely needs to be done. I'll help. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Sure. This concludes Linda Chalker Scott's talk on what science says about pruning mature trees. To learn more, you can get additional information at the ISA web store, including an illustrated guide to pruning and the third edition of the best management practices for tree pruning. If you would like to receive CEUs for listening to this talk, visit the ISA online store and select online CEU quizzes. Thank you for listening to this episode, which was brought to you by the Bartlett Tree Experts, caring for America's trees since 1907. Remember to subscribe to this podcast series and join us next time for another episode of Science of Arboriculture. Trees, you know we can work together and learn what we need to meet the challenge Traditional skills and modern techniques Whatever language you speak You have a world to offer Every day Climb with the ISA